0: I'm Kurt Parker. It's good to be with you this morning to worship and to get our hearts to the point where we're ready to read the Word, understand what it says, and apply it to us. I hope this is not the first time you've been in the Word this week. You're starving this morning, if you are. If this has been the first time, so make it your habit to be in the Word each day. You can find a number of reading schedules in Version, or you can find it at the back in the foyer. year can help you go through the Word verse by verse all the way through the year. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is where our study is now. We're going verse by verse, as is our habit, through these books, and we are nearly through Second Corinthians. We've labeled it spiritual warfare, walking the hard road in particular today, and over the next couple of weeks, marks of a faithful minister. Last week, we did some review. It has been some time since we've been in this new section in Second Corinthians. Paul has to address some trouble in the church, that really is the the issue here. False apostles, deceitful workers, verse 13 says, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're not the real deal in the church. Paul has finally come to the point where he has to address them specifically. Some of the church have begun to listen to them, so the issue is at hand. And not only are they false apostles and deceitful workers disguised as those sent by Jesus, they learned how to disguise themselves from none other than Satan himself that typically identifies trouble in the church. We don't realize that, but Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul says in the Corinthian church, particularly here, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So they look like every other person except causing trouble in the church, causing some dissension, and Paul is gonna address it. And so by the way of false teachers and uh, deceitful workers, Satan works in the church by proxy. And we saw all of that. You can go back and catch up with all of that. And he does that to trick the church, to deceive the church, to get the church off course. Happens all the time. Take advantage of the church. So Paul starts his confrontation really by refuting some of the boasting that they have done based on a standard they came up with themselves, and we talked about all of that, by boasting of his own credentials based on what ministry would look like for a true apostle. And it wasn't what we expected, and we saw that it was perhaps not what someone would say if they wanted to identify their bio or something. And... So look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 if you would, and uh, we will start in verse 22, verse 28 will be where we're going to pick up today in our new section, but it is our habit to read through the word of God, of course, early on, let the Holy Spirit begin to work as we get the idea of the context of these sections, it's beneficial to the church. Look at verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So he's equal to them in all of those areas. In verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, of course they're not, we just saw they disguise themselves as as angels of life, they're Satan's workers. He says, I speak as if insane, I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, often danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep, verse 26. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst off without food and cold and exposure. Now we said, as we got to the end of that, that doesn't seem to be what someone might want to say if they're trying to impress someone with their credentials. Sounds like a guy who's living his life in the wrong way and needs to read some books about how to do ministry in a less confrontational way. So we move on to verse 28. This is new for us today. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Verse 29, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Verse 30, if I have to boast, I'll boast of what pertains to my weakness. Verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the Ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hand. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, verse 2, in Christ, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven, verse 3, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise, verse 4, and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak, verse 5. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses, for I do not wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for if I do wish to boast, I'll not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me, with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Verse 8. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore... I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Verse 11. I have been up foolish. You yourself compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Verse 12, the sign of a true apostle, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Verse 13, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not come a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. Let's stop right there. That in essence is this section that deals with Paul's bragging. There's going to be some other things that will overlap that, but you can see. Uh, the issues here as we read through that section and the new part that is now under our 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 study there are a few things going on here And so we're going to make sense of that as we compare scripture with scripture going verse by verse But one thing we can be seeing we can see here for sure as We've made our way through nearly all of these two letters. There always appears to be issues that must be dealt with in the church It was that way right from the beginning. It's true, It's still true today whether it's internal or external for illustration purposes, uh, there are over 60 references to Ethiopia in the Bible. And Christianity there goes back to the days of Philip in Acts 8. But the modern story of the Ethiopian church is perhaps one you might not know. But it also sounds like reading from the book of Acts, especially among the Walamos tribe. In 1927, the Sedan Interior Mission, Sim, sent missionaries to evangelize this wild tribe, known in general as worshippers of Satan. During their annual, what they called the Passover, the Walamos sacrificed a bull to Satan, sprinkled his blood on the doorposts of their houses, and served its raw flesh to every member of their families. The atmosphere really shouted demonic activity. So the Sim missionaries came, and after several years, a small church was established, but missionary labor was interrupted when Mussolini uh, invaded Ethiopia in 1935. When Italian troops reached the tribal area, they demanded Sim leave. The missionaries met for a final time with the Walamo's believers. When they had arrived, not a single Walamo had known Christ. Now, after nine years, 48 native believers gathered around them. The little church worshiped, wept, and shared communion together, and then the 26 SIM missionaries boarded army trucks for evacuation. On April 17, 1937, their first day without missionary support, the little Walamo church found itself having to stand on its own feet. We knew God was faithful, wrote missionary Raymond Davis, that he was able to preserve what he had begun among the Walamos, but still we wondered if ever we were able to come back, what would we find? The invasion of Ethiopia marked the beginnings of World War II and it wasn't until July 4th, 1943, six years later, that the missionaries returned and what they found defies belief. The Italian soldiers had tried to stamp out the small church. Church leaders were given a hundred lashes, and one in particular was given 400. They, uh, they um, were a- unable to lie on their backs for months. Several had died. Two of them, Wandaro and Tori, were beaten in public, and while being beaten, preached to the crowds, giving out the gospel between lashes. Conversions multiplied, and tribal villagers began sending missionaries to other villages. And when they returned July 4th, 1943, instead of 48 believers, the returning missionaries now found 18,000. There's always been trouble for the church, right, since the very beginning. We know this because we read the New Testament. We see Paul having to address external pressure and certainly persecution and internal difficulties with difficult people and false doctrine. So sometimes that trouble is on the outside, sometimes the trouble is inter- internal. As I was looking over that illustration earlier this week, and it, it, it was on my mind, of course, as it's probably been on yours, uh, the church in Afghanistan. Have you been prompted to pray? I'm sure you have. And all of the threats, of course, that the Taliban has made in relation to the church as a result of our administration. And you, you worry about them and you wonder what's going to happen, much like probably the SIM missionaries did as they departed from from Sudan. But can I tell you that the church is built on a rock, isn't it? It's not inhibited by the Taliban or anybody else. And as we pray for those who are in prison as if we were ourselves, that's what the Bible tells us to do, we pray that way, don't we? As we pray for those who are suffering, we read their letters by email, and they say we'll probably see Jesus within the next two weeks, but we're okay with that. So you realize that the church has always had suffering. It's always had difficulty. It's always had pressure on it. The church is no different there in Afghanistan. We don't have to suffer in that way, but we understand that, don't we? We don't, we don't want them to have to suffer. We want to have the Lord take vengeance on them. We know someday that he will, right? We know in Revelation that those who are martyred gather under his throne and say, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And the Lord knows how to do it, to preserve people who persecute his church for judgment. The Lord knows how to do it. But we also know that the church is powerful. We, all know, we also know that the church might be 20 times as large if and when at some point people are able to go back in than it is now. Because it's not inhibited by difficulty, is it? Church is built on a rock and the gates of hell will what? Not prevail against it. But in order for the church to remain true, the church needs many things, but perhaps not the things we think that, or you might expect that it needs. The church needs sound doctrine. And then people who will hear what the word says, what it means by what it says, and then do it. The church needs to understand its purpose and people who are willing to submit and act on its purpose, and that is the great commandment and the great commission. And if it has those things, it has sound doctrine and people who understand it and work on it, it will be right in the middle of where God has established it to be and doing the things God has established it to do regardless of the circumstances around it or in it. And to know sound doctrine, the church needs ministers who will teach the word and deal with the issues, leaders who care about the purity of the church and the lives of the individual members. It's not hard to figure out that the church where it's persecuted is pure, right? Because no one's gonna pretend to be a believer, no one's going to church because it's the cultural thing to do, no one's coming because grandma goes or because my husband goes or my wife goes because that could result in your death. Church is pure there. So the church where there isn't persecution is the one that's under the most danger of not being pure, right? And so the church needs faithful leaders, and so Paul's going to be that example. We're going to see that as we mark some of those things, and this, of course, is not a time to be fooled by words. It's not a time to be sentimental about tolerance, uh, and it's no time to be gullible. The church has to be firm and understand what it believes and then teach those things, and then able to throw down all those high towers lifted up against the knowledge of Christ, that's the whole idea of knowing what the Word says. And we're going to see that type of leader modeled by the Apostle Paul. Now look at verse 28, which is new for us today, and we'll just work verse by verse as is our habit, comparing Scripture with Scripture to get an idea of what a godly leader, uh, and in Paul's particular situation, a faithful apostle, a true apostle, looks like. Because what we've read, these are, these are the marks of a godly leader. These are the marks of a faithful believer. Walking the hard road is part and parcel of following Jesus. And among all the things that we learn from Paul through these two letters, we learn that his humble acceptance of those truths, embracing them as affirmation of God's direction and affirmation of the ministry he's been given. So difficult times, hardship, and all that just affirmed that Paul was right where God wanted him to be. So look at verse 28. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Verse 29, who is weak without my being weak and who is led into sin without my my intense concern? Let's stop right there. So Paul starts with an interesting uh, turn of a phrase. He says, apart from such external things. And that's, of course, referring to other things like the things he has listed. So the best way, I think, to understand that, apart from what I've just listed and things I haven't listed, I think is the way we can understand that. Apart from the things that I've been through and the things I didn't tell you I've been through, there's this daily pressure of of me, on me for the churches. He didn't want to do this foolish thing of boasting, and it wasn't something that he desired to get into, so it's not surprising to us that there's things that he didn't list, and that's precisely what he indicates here. So there's more he could have said in this foolish recital, but he gave enough to get the point across. But he says, besides all of that, which is just a hit-and-miss kind of thing. It's not daily. There is this daily pressure on me for all the churches, notwithstanding the effect of the physical hardship that that was on Paul. And compared to that, this pastoral burden of the church is much greater. Day by day, the idea of an anxious concern for the churches established through his labors really bears down on him, and he thinks about it. Their weaknesses uh, and and the known capacity of the evil one to work inside the church and create havoc uh, amongst people who follow him or taken captive by him. That's never far from his thoughts, never far from his prayers. So that's the first mark of a faithful minister, as we can see in here, he is a heart for the health of the church. A faithful guide, and, and of course Paul is, is saying this because it's one of the many problems among those who, as we pointed out, the false apostles, false teachers, they claim the authority over the church, but they don't really care about the church. And so Paul can point out uh, that he's superior because he does love them. Paul says, I feel the pain of the church, weaknesses, uh, their difficulties. And the next word is an important one. It helps us describe Paul's experience as a minister. Episostasis, the pressure of the day-to-day things going on in the church. He was burdened with those matters. It applied pressure on him. And that word, uh, episostasis, is the word for rebellion. And so when you, it's metaphorically used here, so when we understand it, it's like an uprising constantly that he has to deal with. So constant irritation, a constant attack, a harassing, relentless, wearing assault—that's what's going on. As he's thinking about the churches and all the places he had ministry and the things that are going on amongst the people, because we're going to see it's getting very specific here in just a minute. It just assaults his peace, no doubt. His his health—I'm sure it robs him of his sleep, his tranquility, his happiness. It's an assault that never ends. He understood how to handle the things that happened to him physically they were a lot easier to manage right philippians chapter 4 verse 11 says i've learned to be content in whatever circumstances i am i know how to get along with humble means i know also know how to live in prosperity and any and every circumstance i've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry of both having abundance and suffering need that's the easier part of it see paul learned this it takes patience you certainly have to trust the lord with those kinds of things persecution and hardship and suffering need but the hard part is enduring the suffering and the pain and the pressure of the churches Paul says that's a daily thing he was concerned about his people that's the mark of a true apostle a faithful minister Paul cared about them it's not and it's not part of the emphasis here but the philippian church cared for him too and we kind of see that reciprocal back and it wasn't always the case but in philippians chapter 4 verse 10 paul says i rejoiced in the lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me paul always had concern for the church the philippian church had to revive their concern indeed he says you were concerned before but you lacked opportunity to express it so he they were concerned about him but they weren't finding a way to or they couldn't find a way to minister to his need. Nevertheless, verse 14, he says, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. Obviously, that wasn't always the case in the churches. Remember chapter 7, when he first heard, 2 Corinthians 7, when he first heard the Corinthians had begun to, to backbite about him and gossip about him and stab him in the back and has some lies of the false apostles and began to believe them. Verse 6 says that he was depressed, and it says he was so depressed, and we looked at this, that he had no heart left for ministry. He had an opportunity to preach at Troas. Do you remember this? And then he didn't do it. Because he was so concerned about what was going on in the church. And that happens uh, to ministers from time to time when they have to deal with hardship in the church and hard people. It takes away that desire, that joy to do ministry. But in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, he says, there is this daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That's Paul's heart. He's expressing, I feel the pain of the churches. I feel their weaknesses. Who's weak without my being weak, he said. And, and who is led into sin without my intense concern? I feel the pain of the church and what they're suffering. So the man loved, obviously, and had desire to express that. And, and the beginning of his conversation with the Galatian church reveals a lot about what we just talked about. In Galatians chapter 4, as we explain Scripture with Scripture, verse 14, here's what he says. And, and you can mark this and kind of see the change as we work our way through. Verse 14, he says, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me. As an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself, what happened? Well, Paul was sick, and he was with them, and they didn't despise him, and they cared for him, and so he said he really, really appreciated that. But obviously, as you move to verse 15, things have changed. He says um, in verse 15, he says, "Where then is that sense of blessing you had?" So something's changed, right? So they they. A, a, initially received him as an angel of God. They ministered to his needs. They treated him like you would cre- treat Jesus if he was there. And he says, but then, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and give them to me. So obviously his ailment had to do with his eyesight. And then he says in verse 16, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So what's happened? Paul's at Galatia. He's sick. They're ministering to him. They treat him very well. And then he sees the problem in the church, and what does he do? He addresses it. And then all of a sudden, everything's changed, and what does he say? So am I, I'm your enemy now because I have to address something in the church. So this is the, this is the type of pressure Paul is under. This is how it works inside the ministry. He had to deal with false doctrine again in the church and difficult people in Galatia, and when he had to do it, uh, the care they had demonstrated to Paul dried up. And so he says in verse 19, he says, My children, with whom market, I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. What's it mean? He had to go back. This is not how we manage ourselves in the church. This is not what has to be done. He has to go through all the difficult times and difficult people and work again to get the church to mature. The pains of birth, that's the idea. The church isn't where it needs to be. He has to deal with these birth pains again for delivery all over again. And those things concern Paul. Ephesians chapter 1, again, a great illustration. In verse 16, he says, Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe so what's going on here paul is is praying for the church it's a burden on him he understands what's going on in the church he does it again we have philemon 6 he says And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. We don't know exactly what's going on with the church. It's kind of like listening to a one-sided phone call. We get to hear what he says to the church so we can go backwards and say, okay, so what's going on? Obviously, the fellowship of your faith wasn't very effective. And Paul says, I'm praying that it will be. And it'll be that way from the knowledge of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Then again, Philippians chapter 1, we see Paul pray. This is on his heart. It's a place where he ministered. He says, for God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So what's going on? They love, but where there's no discernment there, right? A lot like the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5. They're just saying to the guy who's in morality, they're just saying, oh, yeah, just stay here. Yo, we love you. And, and that's not what was supposed to happen because they had to confront the, the sinfulness. So I pray your love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. There's coming a day where you're going to stand before Christ. He's going to look back over the course of your life and how you manage these kinds of things. And you need to be able to discern what's excellent and what isn't. And that's the most important thing. So Paul, this burden is on Paul. And he says, I have birth pains until Christ is fully formed in you. That's why he can write Philippians and Thessalonians and Philemon. He can write to Romans and all the other churches as an experience of his faithfulness. And so as he cares for the church, which is that first mark, he expresses that care in prayer, doesn't he? We see that over and over again, a model for praying for the church. He was burdened for them, and it works out in how he prayed for them. This reflected his concern. His heart was for their maturity. And so he would would pray for them to grow and be stable. He would pray for them to walk with the Lord, to love each other more. He'd pray for them to know what things are good and what things aren't good and discern between them and exclude the things that aren't. He he would pray for them to walk in the Spirit and don't walk in the flesh and show forth the fruit of the Spirit and be sincere and blameless. See, Paul is concerned about that. He's concerned about their testimony individually. He's concerned about their testimony corporately. So he cares for the church. He prays for them. He's concerned about their testimony. And so he addresses those kinds of things. And all that because his heart was for his people and their spiritual health. When they were struggling spiritually, he struggled. When they were walked in sinfulness, he grieved. When they were flourishing spiritually, he rejoiced. See, these things were always on his mind every single day. Physical suffering was actually easier to endure because it didn't happen every day, but this was always on his mind, always robbing his sleep, always robbing his, his, uh, his happiness. See. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about his love for the people. He says in verse 5, he says, For we never came with flattering speech, We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did he seek glory for men. And, you know, I thought that's interesting as we read that. That's precisely what false teachers do, right? They come with flattering speech. They want you to feel good about yourself and everything about yourself. And don't worry about yourself. You know, everything's all right. I want you to do, you know, God's going to bless you. All of that. See? And and uh, we didn't come for, as a pretext for greed. That's a false teacher, right? Coming in, they want to get all they can get, uh, as much as they can milk the church. That's what they're after. Paul said, "I didn't do that. We didn't seek glory from men." Again, false teachers—they're always wanting somebody to affirm them. You're such a great guy. You're doing such a great job. You know, you're a powerful man of God. All that—that's what they want. See, Paul said, "I didn't come with any of those things when we came. We didn't seek glory from men." either from you or for others, mark this, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, we had the right to come in and say, you need to listen, this needs to be straightened out, but they didn't. We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now that doesn't mean Paul didn't address their problems. If you read further into the letter, we know that he did. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. So, that pressure of all the churches, he sorrowed over them, he worried about them, he struggled over their sinful areas, he worked hard for them, he prayed for them, he pled with them, he confronted them, he worked with them. See? That's the daily pressure. He's caught up in concern over their disobedience, their immaturity. You can, you can tell a true apostle, you can tell a faithful minister because he is passionately consumed with the lives of the people he ministers to. And on the whole, the church then and the church now resists that. Okay. The church then resisted it, so Paul had to continue to go back and and uh, affirm that he loved them, but he wasn't also going to soft pedal where they were erring. And the church now resists that in general. Now look back at First Second uh, Corinthians eleven verse twenty nine. He says this. So Paul had care for the church. We know that he's a true. Uh, a true minister, because he had care. Verse twenty-nine: Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? So, how deep is his burden for the health of the church? He's concerned about that health. There's another mark of a faithful minister: he is compassionate over the needs of the church. For for false teachers, it's really the opposite, isn't it? Which is why Paul can boast about this: they don't care about the maturity of believers, they don't care about their struggles. They don't care about their temptations and trials. They don't care about people drifting into sin or struggling with weakness. That's not a concern. They only care about looking good. Uh, They're marked by selfishness and self-centeredness, and they take advantage of the weakness in people. Jesus said of this type of person in Matthew 23, you probably remember this. These are the false teachers of Jesus' age, the ones who were in charge but didn't say what should be done. He says to them, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you devour widows' houses, in other words, you take the most weak of all and you consume them and you take everything that they have, Paul says, that's what false teachers do. Paul says, who's weak without my being weak? See the opposite? False teachers take everything the weak have. Paul says, who's weak without my being weak? He says, Jesus says, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. So you want to look spiritual, but you're not. Woe to you who scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around the sea to, and land to make one proselyte. When he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. See, all, they always look good on the outside. They go everywhere to make sure people will, will follow them, but then they're taken captive by the whole system, see, and become just like the people that they're under. Now, Jesus didn't have many uh, flattering words to say about that. But people's weaknesses don't lead Paul to take advantage of them. He expresses this, this mark of, of a true Apostle, a true minister in his compassion for the needs of the church, it's expressed in empathy, isn't it? It causes him to feel weakness himself, as he sees weakness in somebody. He's he's struggling himself and feeling that weakness with them. That's why he said in First Thessalonians five fourteen, he said, um, "We urge you, brethren, to admonish the ruling, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak." Say. feels weak when he hears about or sees the failings, the strugglings, the stumblings of the weak, and um, he doesn't want to have to see them go through it, so he exhorts the church to strengthen the weak. He said, you urge you, uh, do these things. And look at the last part of verse 29. He says, um, who was led into sin without my intense concern? He says, um, present passive scandalizo, who is led into sin. That's where we get our English word for scandal. It's an interesting way to go about this. It's, it, the, the word includes the trigger for a trap. That's the idea. Whenever you see that scandal thing, we think, you know, somebody got caught doing something. It's very embarrassing for them. But from the Bible's perspective, it's going underneath all of that. It's the trap that pulled them in that caused all the embarrassment. It's not the embarrassment itself. It's the trigger for the trap which caught them. And so Paul says, you know, I'm concerned and I'm weak when they're weak, but if they're led into sin... Who is led into sin without my intense concern? The Scripture uses that word, scandalizo. A couple of different ways. It's described in Scripture as a result of obstinacy. People get trapped in a trap because they're stubborn. I'm going to do what I want, when I want. You know people like this, right? It doesn't matter what you say. They're going to stay on the same course. It's not aligned with the Word of God because they're stubborn, and it's leading towards a trap in sin. That's what happens, see? Or getting a foot tangled because being fooled, into straying off the path. That, that's probably the purest way to understand scandalizo as a trap. You get off the main path and you got someplace where you shouldn't be and you, and you got trapped. It's also described in a passage that talks about being offended because of someone, some imagined slight that you may have had. But regardless of how it occurred, whether it was something Paul had to say to them and they were offended by it, or, or whether it was their own obstinacy and their stubbornness or, or wandering away from sound teaching, the question's rhetorical. Who is led into sin without my intense concern? No one. Regardless of the background, regardless of what happened, if you led into sin, I'm concerned about it. And then the idea there, peruomai, that's, that's intense concern. That's, that's, um, that's more intense than perhaps we we're thinking about. If you're intensely concerned about that, about something, you, you've given it your full attention. But paruomai, it has its root fire. The idea for Paul is, he is he's on fire about it. If it's, something's happening, and somebody's in sin, he wants to go in, and address this issue. Purity of the church is the thing. See, it isn't the thing in modern uh, Christianity, but it is the thing as we look in the New Testament. And so Paul says, you know, I have some intense concern. I'm, I'm, I'm aflame with all of this. And here his compassion for the church is expressed in not just um, a compassion and empathy. It's expressed here in engaging with sinfulness. He isn't ignoring it. He isn't saying, well, that's just the way it goes, like we do sometimes, you know. In, in the church, sometimes it takes us so long to react to someone that we know is an obvious sinfulness. Either they're being stubborn, they're not showing up, or or they're straying off the path, and you know they're not where they need to be, and we're not saying anything about that. Or or it's a um, they're fooled, uh, and and or they were offended by something or whatever. And by the time we finally, and this is your job as well as mine, by the time we finally say something, it's like three or four weeks or a month or a month and a half, and then you know obviously they're way out there. Trapped by that, and they're not interested in coming back. We need to watch that. See, Paul. Paul is intensely concerned. If he looks around, and he sees somebody having trouble, he's he's taking care of that. He's going and addressing it in whatever manner he needs to do that. And that's the idea. And and it's you know sinfulness and and somebody stumbling, somebody getting trapped. I mean, that's the whole idea. I think of Matthew 18, 6 and 7. We looked at this part, part of this last time. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's intense, isn't it? That's, um, that's intense concern. That's Jesus. I'm concerned enough that if somebody is actually causing someone to stumble, Jesus says it would be better for him to hang a millstone around his neck and be tossed into the sea. That's a lot more concern, I think, about sin and leading people into sin than perhaps we have in the modern church anymore. Paul, I think, inherited this. He understood this. And then the last part, it says, woe to the world because it's stumbling blocks. So there's going to be many who create this scandal,izzo. Um, For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. So it's going to happen. It happened in the first century. It's still happening now. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. See, that's righteous indignation, isn't it? That's a burning understanding that what's going on in somebody else's life is, is important and you have to engage yourself with that. When there was immorality in the early Christian church uh, in Corinth, in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, you remember we went through this uh, many years ago. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though he were present. What did Paul say had to be done? He had to be put out. Paul's not even there at the church. Again, daily pressure of the churches on me. See, Paul had worked in Corinth. He wasn't there at that time, but he, he knows there's this guy engaging in gross immorality in the church, and some of the church have welcomed them and said, Oh, we just gotta love him, and you know, not discerning. He says, Listen, this person needs to be out, purity the church is the thing. This person needs to understand the seriousness of their actions. That's intense concern, isn't it? In Galatians chapter one, verse nine, he says, as we said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he's to be accursed. That's precisely the burning that Paul has against those who are disturbing the church in Corinth, isn't it? They're bringing something that shouldn't be taught, and he's concerned about it, and he's going and he's addressing it. And then mark this next verse in 2 Corinthians 7.3. I don't speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying this because the health of the church is the thing. Your personal testimony is the thing. And I have a burden and a passion and it's daily on me for the care of the church. See? And you can mark this, engagement over sinfulness, that whole peruso, that whole fire burning and this scandalizatai, both of those together, that's not the enemy of love. You would think that it is, right? But you can see by Paul's example, it's not condemning to engage people who are trapped by sin, okay? Wandering away into sin, fooled into sin, obstinately being trapped, being offended, engaging in those things that are, are engaging those things in people, that's not the opposite of love. Love is the motivator for all of that. Love's the motivator for compassion, isn't it? Love's the motivator for empathy. That's why you take it so hard when somebody's weak. See, it's why you want to see the church grow. It's why, it's why you pay, pray for the church. Love is the motivator to do those kinds of things. And in this context, Paul was inflamed as he watched people being pulled away from sound doctrine. See, for us, it's just like, well, you know, everybody kind of has their thing they want to believe. It's like I, I told you a number of months ago. You know, I think, I think that generally in the church, most people would say that if people believe something Intensely enough and are committed enough to it then, I mean that's okay, right? We just kind of let that go Well, listen God, God doesn't have that same opinion if Somebody varies from the truth of the Word of God. It's not okay. It's not okay to leave them there It's not okay for them to think that it's not the same as everybody else and what everybody else believes but I think in general we we don't have that discernment anymore in the church to say no that, that no that's important You can't say that that's wrong, right? And as soon as you say that's wrong though, you're looked at the one who's harsh you're confrontational right you're the one who's the problem I think that's what we find in the Word of God see he was inflamed when he saw teachers pulling people away and destroying confidence in the Word of God and the church And we see that in modern Christianity now don't we and I gave you a number of examples when we went through that passage and when faithful ministers address these things because they love the church Right, and, and, they, and they love her corporate testimony, her individual testimony and believers, and they address these types of things. They get accused of not loving and being confrontative, and, 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 that's, and they say that's the opposite of love. But that's precisely the thing Paul says he does here. It's that daily burden for the church. It's much much harder on him than having to do the physical uh, things that he had to go through. And, and as you think about this and Paul's example as a general rule, typically it's certainly anecdotal this is not what you see with false teachers, what Paul's doing here. In most megachurches, you don't see discipline going on. You don't see people being confronted by sin. You don't see people being put out. Why? Because people won't like you if you do that, okay? Maybe a whole bunch of people will think that's bad and you shouldn't be doing it. Typically, successful false teachers are very comfortable. Typically, they're very wealthy. They don't live in a of, world of hostility and persecution. They live in a world of comfort and wealth and prosperity. Why? And we pointed this out before. Typically, false teachers and false ministries are part of the system. They're not running against the system. So the system isn't hostile to them, see? They're not intensely concerned. They're not weak if somebody else is weak. They're not confronting sinfulness with righteous indignation. They're not concerned about the testimony of the church and what that looks like to the outside world, obviously, or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. They're concerned about their own image. They're concerned about wealth and their persona, and they go on TV and they convince those with very little to send it all in as a seed for God to bless, but really what they want to do is just milk everybody for everything that he can possibly get, see? False teachers tend to flourish, be successful, draw huge crowds, be thought of as great men, hailed as heroes, and then you get faithful teachers like Paul, true men of God tend to suffer persecution, hostility, false accusation, and sometimes even physical harm, and we can see that in Paul's life, right? That wasn't what was going on with the false teachers, but that was going on with Paul, who was truly the great man of God. It wasn't what was obvious, right? They deal with sin traps and, and weaknesses and empathize with those that are weak, and they don't stop doing it, see? And then that takes us to the last four verses of chapter 11, and this we'll finish up with this. Look there if you would. So Paul says this, and after we've laid this foundation, this is be, it's just going to f- easily fall into your lap. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. That doesn't sound like a false teacher, right? Most people don't want to say, here's where I really screw up all the time. Here's where I really mess things up. Here's where I, am. I just can't seem to get this right. Again, Paul just denies all the norms of your bio where you want everybody to think that you're highly educated and you've planted a lot of churches and you're well-written and all that kind of stuff. See, Paul doesn't do that. He goes, if I have to boast, I'm going to boast about what pertains to my weaknesses. He's trying to show himself superior to false apostles, and he does it, listen, by talking about his suffering, which seems so contrary to the normal approach. That's not the way leaders operate. See, uh, false leaders, they tend to be impervious to the difficult things, right? False apostles would have paraded themselves as invincible, right? We're strong. Uh, you know, the, the Lord is doing mighty, powerful things in my life. I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm impressive. I'm dominant, right? I can control this environment, take charge of it. I can claim victory in Jesus' name. And then because I'm claiming victory in Jesus' name, obviously no more hardship on me at all. See, that's what, that's what false teachers say. Now, Paul. Paul says, you want to see what I brag about? I'll show you the inner workings. I'll boast in my weaknesses. And that's our next mark of a faithful minister. Number three, he doesn't operate under his own power. We're going to see that so clearly. He knows he doesn't have any power to accomplish anything for the kingdom in and of himself. And then he illustrates just how little he controls the circumstances surrounding his own ministry. Instead of showing this great miracle power, right, great standing of faith to disarm the powers of darkness, what we hear with false teachers all the time, what's he say? Look at verse 31. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus He who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. So it's as if he's standing right before the Lord and saying, what I'm about to tell you is precisely what happened. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so I escaped his hands. Oh, that's so impressive, Paul. Right? Instead of boasting about his greatness in the hierarchy of the kingdom... How important he must be to God. He tells a story about how he had to get lowered out of a window in a basket. That's a very embarrassing thing, isn't it? Surreptitiously sneaking out of town in the middle of the night so that a bunch of pagans don't take his life. Right? That's hardly what you would expect from a powerful apostle. And he, and he gives his enemies so much ammo to shoot at him. Can you imagine them saying, How could he be a true apostle? If this is how he has to get around that's so embarrassing right it's the very opposite of what you would expect out of anybody who's making a defense of his apostleship right you get that incongruity of all of that Paul says here I'll brag about this I had to sneak out of town and get let out of a basket so nobody would kill me Paul was powerful though wasn't he I mean powerful writer nobody could deny that right powerful speaker powerful in the gospel Powerful refuter of the Jews. He'd only been born again a couple of days. He's in Damascus, and he's refuting the Jews in, in, the, in the synagogue, and they wanted to kill him. He said he'd only been a believer a couple of days. He was a powerful speaker, no question about that. Powerful arguer. He wasn't much to look at. We looked at that, right? He was barely over four foot tall. Suffered from physical ailments. Ridiculed, imprisoned, flogged, disrespected, ignored, gossiped about the power he had power he displayed in weakness, see. It wasn't his power on display, was it? Paul wanted God's power on display. That's what he got, wasn't it? In, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will be of God and not from ourselves. When Paul got through ministering People walked out. He didn't want people to think what a great guy Paul was. That's the last thing he wanted people to think. He said, we hold this treasure in an earthen vessel, in an ugly old clay pot, and we just pour that out, and you just think how great God is. That's, that's Paul's understanding of power. That's Paul's understanding of, of being a true apostle. He wasn't interested in taking credit. He wasn't interested in people thinking he was great. See, He didn't come and talk about himself or brag about himself or flatter people with words. He didn't want people to remember him at all. That's real power, spiritual power. And God worked through him like he did through the seeds planted by the sin missionaries long ago, right? They could take no credit for what went on with the 18,000 converts when they came back six years later, could they? Only that they had delivered sound doctrine to the church and showed the church how to discharge that sound doctrine and gave them their marching orders, didn't he? Great commandment and a great commission, and then they were taken out of the way, and what happened? The power was really in the message, wasn't it? It wasn't in the sin missionaries. They never would have claimed that they did this great work because obviously God did it, right? Some plant, some water, but God, what? Gives the increase. So the real power for change in in spite of apparent outward ineffectiveness and hopeless situations like in Afghanistan, right? But the real power to change is found beyond the individuals, isn't it? They're just clay pots poured out the word of God in their heart is divinely powerful, Second Corinthians 4 says, for the destruction of fortresses. A weapon God can use, mark it, forged correctly, is going to be used in power. But it won't be because we're great. It's because he's great, and we're okay with him being great. That's a, and I think that's a, an important lesson to pull out of this as we think about what faithful teachers look like. We can see this all in Paul. Of course, he's, he's troubled all the time by what's going on in the church. He's always having to worry about it. And apply himself to these things, and be on fire about when things are are in sinfulness, and 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 empathetic when people are weak. This is a real struggles Paul had. We can pull out, we can pull out real marks of what it looks like for a faithful minister, and what it looks like for you as you minister to people. Where real power will be found. All right, let's let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We're out of time. Thank you, Father, for uh, an awesome time together. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. So grateful for. Uh, just being together and the joy that it is to encourage one another to sing together to have a common bond which is found in in this faith handed down once for all, we're grateful for our salvation we 're grateful for our security we 're grateful for the mandates you've given us to march uh, and follow the great commandment and take the great commission out we 're thankful for your word that shows us how we 're to live and what we 're to do and to be discerning about these kinds of things that our testimony might not be tarnished. And so, Father, you, you you make the best of all of these kinds of things. Ignore the words of this speaker if they vary from where you wanted your people to be and help them to embrace these kinds of things, which is where the power really is. Father, we want to be church like that. We want to be a, a people like that. And we you know this. We, we honor your word. We read it. And we want to know what it says and then do it. And I pray that you'll help us, empower us to do that. And, Father, as we go off from here, where our mission field is located, around the work areas and school and all the things that are going to occur this week, and for our students who are back, Lord, we pray that you'll strengthen them as they start the new semester, calm their fears as there's some unknowns there, perhaps, and, and help them to do well for your own glory, that you might equip them for the things that you have for their future. We thank you for them. Lord, I show, that, show us how we can best minister and uh, to them, and and then they can minister as, as well with us and through us. Father, I pray that uh, this week we'll you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor is ourself take the gospel to everyone that you bring in our path. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said.